This guy in the front row has my back. I love that. How are you guys? Does the sniffles have anybody else? Is it just me? Yes, it's just me. Okay, well, I have a box of Kleenex here. I was trying to be sneaky first service, and they said, hey, you should just take some Kleenex up with you. I said, okay, I'll do it. It'd be awesome. Um, well, hey, again, my name is Austin, one of the teaching and venue pastors here. Uh, if this is your first time at EV Free, uh, we just want to welcome you, uh, and thank you for coming out. Um, if you've been around EV Free for a while, you know that we love to worship together. We love to teach from God's Word together. Now, right now, we are in a, uh, a series about prayer. We've been journeying through the book of Luke, and we've found ourselves in Luke chapter 11, which is a, a teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and so the disciples of Jesus finally round up Jesus and say, hey, will you teach us to pray? Jesus launches into uh, a small bit about these are words that you can say when you pray. But then he also references that this prayer isn't exactly safe. It's actually a wildly dangerous prayer. And so he launches into this parable uh, about a friend that goes to another friend at midnight. Uh, and there's this audacious bold, persistent request uh, that the man makes and says, praying the Lord's prayer is a little bit like that. So let's turn to Luke chapter 11, beginning, Luke, yes, so true, so true. Luke 11, this is beginning in verse number one, we'll read the text. It says, one day Jesus was praying And he was praying in a certain place. Now, as you read the Gospel of Luke, you begin to learn that prayer becomes the identifiable marker of the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't go anywhere or do anything without prayer. In fact, as we read the Gospel of Luke, we find that Jesus is oftentimes alone by himself in a solitary place praying. When he does have his disciples around, he says, stay watch and pray with me. And oftentimes the disciples wildly fail. (laughs) They fall asleep on Jesus. Jesus finds them asleep uh, or in a daze or arguing with each other about who's the greatest. And so finally the disciples come up to him and say, Jesus, will you teach us to pray? So we continue reading. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say something like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Would your kingdom come? Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. One of the things that Jesus leads this prayer off with is the word Father. Now, in first century Israel, it wouldn't have been uncommon to use the phrase our Father. Oftentimes, if you were going to pray a prayer in which you wanted to refer to God as our Father, you'd have to have about 10 uh, Jewish males together in order to do that. But one of the things that makes the ministry of Jesus distinct is he oftentimes refers to God as my Father. There's this very a personable address that Jesus uses when he addresses the Father. And this prayer becomes so dangerous for the disciples that Jesus launches into this parable to explain to them what it's going to be like to pray this prayer. And so the text continues in verse 5. Then Jesus said to the disciples, suppose that you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, Lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. 
And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I, they are in bed. I can't can't get up and give you anything. Verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened to them. You see, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, it's a little bit harsh, uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, Jesus says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus uses this symbol of Father a minimum of three times in this passage. And so if we really want to understand what Jesus is getting at, we have to understand what is the, what is the constellation of imagery that Jesus is pulling from when he's using the word father? What is, what is the matrix of events that Jesus is looking at when he uses the word father? For someone in first century Israel, oftentimes uh, you carried the vocation of your father. If your father was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If your father worked in the marketplace, you worked in the marketplace. If your father was royalty, you were royalty. That's just kind of the way the first century worked. And so we want to look at this text through the lens of what does it mean to refer to God as father? And more specifically, uh, through the idea that the vocation of our father becomes our vocation. And so we're going to look at three sons throughout the text. The first son we're going to look at is Adam in Genesis 1 and 2. The second son we're going to look at is Israel. And the third son we're going to look at is Jesus. So turn to Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 38. Uh, Jesus has just been baptized, and we're going to land in this passage in just a minute. But it launches into this genealogy. You see, oftentimes we don't, um, we don't associate Adam with being a son of God. But they go through this entire genealogy. A lot of Jewish genealogies would end with Abraham because they believe themselves to be uh, children of Abraham. But this genealogy goes beyond Abraham. And by the time we get through a host of wild and difficult names to pronounce, we make it to verse 38, which says this. It says, And Jesus was the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. And, and, and Adam was the son of of God. So what does that mean for Adam to take on the vocation of God? Turn to Genesis chapter 2 beginning in verse 7. You know, as you turn there, we want to set the stage for the situation we're in. In Genesis 1 beginning in verse 1 it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, some scholars talk about this creation and it's the idea that the earth was formless and void. Uh, There was darkness over the surface of the deep. In fact, the earth was absolutely in utter chaos. And what happens when God comes on the scene is he begins to call forth lights. And then it says that he separates the lights. And then in another scene, he he calls forth water and then he separates the water. And then he begins to, to bring up trees and plants and animals. In a sense, what God does is he brings order to a chaotic universe. Uh, but, but towards the end of his, his creation, he won't be fulfilled until he has a son, which is Adam. 
So we begin in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he'd formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now the idea behind this is that God has, he's brought order to the cosmos, but he hasn't made the whole world to look like the garden. In fact, everything outside of the garden is there's land and there's water and there's trees, but it's not quite functioning the way a beautiful garden functions. And so what God does is he puts this wonderful garden right in the middle. And then he takes Adam, his first son, and he puts him in the garden. He says, Adam, this is what I want you to do. You see how beautiful and wonderful the garden is. You see how everything outside of the garden does not look like that. I want you to go to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the planet, and I want you to make everything on earth look like this beautiful garden. This is the first vocation that man is given, to tend and care after the things that God had created. And in order for Adam to do that, he's going to need to multiply. He's going to need to teach his sons how to do it. But as we read the text, what we find out is that Adam ends up failing in his vocation. His vocation was to do what the father had done. The father had taken a a chaotic mass and he had brought order to it. And specifically the order, he made a beautiful garden and God passes on this vocation to Adam. It says, I want you to be like me because sons are like their fathers. So I want you to go out and make the rest of the world look like this. But as we read the text, we find that Adam fails in doing this. Are you guys with me? Okay, just 15 of us. Okay, so we're going to look at the next son that's mentioned in the Old Testament. Turn to Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. Now, if you were to read through the book of Genesis, you'd find that Adam, being the first son to carry the vocation of his father into the world, failed. You'd find that God wants to, in a sense, restart the project. And so he calls a man aside named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you land and I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, this promise is given to Abraham. Abraham passes it on to Isaac. Isaac passes it on to Jacob. And eventually, Jacob and his sons end up in Egypt. Now, when they end up in Egypt, uh, the scenario is actually pretty favorable. Pharaoh likes Joseph. Pharaoh likes all of the people that are connected with Joseph. And so the people of Israel are in Egypt, and they begin to multiply. However, Egypt is not the land that they were called to. And eventually the scenario switches. The old Pharaoh passes away and the text says there's a new Pharaoh that knew neither Joseph or any of the people connected with Joseph. This Pharaoh begins to put Israel under deep suffering and oppression. And eventually Israel cries out, Lord, do you see the suffering we're in? Will you come and help us? God says, absolutely So he calls forth a prophet named Moses, and he says this in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. I'm glad you guys turned there, because I didn't. (laughs) Exodus 4, verse 22, says this, Then say to Pharaoh, 
This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. You know, when I read this, I started laughing this week. It, uh, it reminded me of my dad. My dad uh, was raised uh, in Miami, Oklahoma. Woo! Just me. Okay. Uh, ended up in the Marine Corps. So my dad has a tough outer shell, but he is just an absolute teddy bear on the inside. Uh, and I remember I was at ORU and uh, I was leading a mission team to South Africa. So I was in charge. I don't know why they did that. And they gave me about eight other students. Um, and I remember meeting the students' parents and just thinking, I have no idea why I'm taking your kids overseas. This is a wild mistake, right? Um, but when you're with ORU and you go through this missions program, uh, there's really rigorous training training to be a missionary, uh, but also just training to be a leader. And so I remember talking with my dad, and my dad is a worst case scenario kind of guy. Like my whole life, like what if this happens? What if that happens? Like my dad is prepared for everything. And uh, eventually it's just kind of like, okay, dad, I get it, I get it, I get it. You've given this to me my whole life. None of this is going to happen. And so we end up going over to South Africa. It's a month-long trip, um, And uh, we're about a week in, and civil unrest hits South Africa. There's this this, uh, thing of xenophobia going on, which there's a lot of refugees coming in, but a lot of the native South Africans didn't like the Nigerians that were coming in. But we had someone on our team that was a Nigerian. And so the minute this happens, I'm on the phone with ORU's crisis management twice a day. When I wake up and when I go to sleep, and I start getting emails from my dad. Uh, and being the protective dad he is, he, he emails me and says, hey, are you okay? And I'm, I'm hoping he hasn't seen the news. And I say, yeah, why would you ask? And then he says, he says, well, did you notice the civil unrest where you are? I said, uh, yeah, I did, but we're going to be fine. So he emails me back, are you talking with ORU? I say, yeah, we're talking with them twice a day. And then there's a pause for about a day. And I know that my dad is biting his tongue. And it's just the it's really cute and funny all at the same time. Then he emails me back, do you need for me to come and get you, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is awesome. Like, that is what, like, you hope for in a dad. Like, regardless of the crisis management that I was talking with at ORU, my dad was willing to bypass everything, get on a flight that day, that night, fly to South Africa and get me. That's kind of the same scenario that you have here. God says, Israel is my firstborn. Now let them go. In the heart of a father, there is this deeply protective, rescuing mentality. And God says, I want you to let them go. Let them come into the desert with me so they may worship with me. What God is going to do is he's going to restart his project to bring order and beauty to the world. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Israel is, uh, is traveling through the desert, and he makes them this promise. And then we're going to draw some parallels between this passage and the previous passage that we read in Genesis. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning of verse 10, when it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you, 
a, a large, uh, what, oh my gosh, let me just start over. I lost my place. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to the land of slavery. So we're going we're gonna to parallel these again. So in, the, in Genesis, you have Adam who takes on the vocation of his father, and he's given a flourishing garden. And the command to him is to go out into the world and make all of the world look like this garden that you didn't plant that you didn't bring up, and that is filled with beautiful fruit that is pleasing to the eye and good for food. What happens to Adam is Adam fails in his vocation, and so Adam is kicked out of the garden. In a sense, this is the first time that someone experiences what the Bible calls exile, being dispelled from the land. Adam is dispelled from the garden. And this passage You have Israel, and Israel is given a sort of garden, but it looks more like a city. It's buildings that you didn't build. It's wells you didn't dig. It's olive groves that you didn't plant. But when you go into this city, I want you to be a light to the nations. I want you to make the whole world look like this. But what happens as you read the text is, in the same way that the first son of God failed Adam... Israel being the second son of God, they are going to fail and they are going to experience the same exile. They are going to be kicked out of the land. And this becomes the predominant theme for Israel. They are in the land, they're out of the land. They go back to the land, they are kicked back out. And so then we find ourselves in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Turn to Luke chapter 3. Are you guys with me? Yes, there's a few more. We're going to get all of you on board by the end. This is Luke 3. I said verse 1. Let's do verse 21. So this is Jesus. Jesus is being baptized. And it says this in verse 21. It says, when all of the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying. Notice he's praying again. And heaven was opened. And watch this. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. And then notice that it it launches into this genealogy that traces itself back all the way to Adam. And then once you get to the end of the genealogy, in in chapter four it says that Jesus is, is sent out into the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? That Israel is rescued from Pharaoh and they are sent out into the wilderness to journey towards the land. This is the exodus of the Old Testament. But what Israel did in the wilderness is they failed. And one of the things that Luke is trying to say here is that by Jesus now being filled with the Holy Spirit, affirmed that he is, he is God's son and that God is pleased with him. It goes through this whole genealogy all the way to Adam. And then Jesus is thrust into the wilderness. But where, where Adam 
And where Israel fail, Jesus will not. Jesus will succeed in the wilderness. And when he comes out of the wilderness, this is Luke chapter 4 beginning in verse 18. He carries the vocation of his father. In the same way that Adam was destined to carry the vocation of his father, in the same way that Israel was destined to carry the vocation of their father, however, both failed, Jesus now launches into his mission to carry the vocation of his father in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has been filled with the Holy Spirit and commissioned to take the vocation of his Father. And so it's interesting. We want to turn to, uh, to Romans Chapter 8, as we continue, we begin to learn that this vocation given to Jesus is the vocation that his people will now carry. So we end up in Romans chapter 8. Flipping, flipping. Verse 12, Paul says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, we have a duty. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, if you do this, you will live. Verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, those are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves. Notice that allusion to Israel being in slavery. The spirit that you'll receive will not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. It is the spirit of God that has made you children of God. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. You see, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also might share in his glory. And here is the invitation for those who are filled and led with the spirit of God. It is to be on mission with God. It is to be on mission with Jesus. When there is this reception of the Spirit and we become children of God, we take on the vocation of our Father. And it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do this. So we'll go back to Luke chapter 11, the very, the very end of it. Jesus has given them the Lord's Prayer. And verse 11 says this, says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give 
the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. To those who want to be children of God, it is merely a question away. To take on the mission and the vocation of the Father, it is merely one question away. This is what Jesus is getting at. When Jesus is giving them the Lord's Prayer, and he begins, Our Father, this this constellation of images comes to mind. God being the father of Adam who gave Adam a vocation, but Adam failed. God being the father of Israel and Israel being given a vocation, but Israel failed. And now Jesus says in the same way that the father is my father, he can be your father. And the way that comes about is by the Holy Spirit. And so we notice the deep abiding invitation of God to make us children of God. And God's good. He really, really is good. No, no, notice all the images that come to mind when, when Adam is put into the world. He is not put into the world with everything a mess. He gives them a head start. <laughs> he gives them this beautiful garden right in the middle. The deep generosity of God. In the same way when Israel's being led to the desert and they end up in the land, they are given these large cities filled with buildings and wells that have already been dug and olive trees. Like God is a generous God. And this is how committed God is to making us his children and to being deeply and wildly generous with us. And we'll call up the band right now as we close. This is Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 32. It says this. It says, And he, he being God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave his son up for all of us. If God is willing to do this, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What a beautiful, beautiful picture that the text paints for us about a God who is wildly committed to his children, but not only committed to his children, but committed to being generous with them. And not just being committed to generosity with them, but being committed to to being uh, part of the mission and the vocation of God. And so when Jesus launches in and he says, our Father, he's inviting the people of God to draw near to the mission of God to make all things new. In a sense, to go on a new exodus, to a new promised land with a new generosity of God. And so this morning, we just want to remember that God is so committed to us that he did not even spare his son. And so when the communion team passes out these elements, we'll take bread And we'll take juice and we will remember the deep, abiding generosity of God that he did not even spare his son. So it's called the communion team forward. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful
We're thankful to have a father like you. A patient father. A father willing to pass on his life, his mission, his vocation to us. A father that is so committed to his children that he did not even spare his son. So God, help us to remember that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.